Welcome to this latest podcast in our series, Good Practice in Teaching. I'll be talking to Wendell Kimper, lecturer in linguistics in the School of Arts, Languages and Cultures. Wendell talks about the project he's working on that's looking at the embedding of accessibility into our teaching and learning practice. Hi, Wendell. Thanks for talking to me today. So can you tell me a bit more about this project that you're doing? Is it with the Institute of Teaching and Learning? Yes, it's fellowship through the Institute. And the focus is on universal design for learning. So looking at how we can embed accessibility for disabled students in our teaching and learning practice itself, rather than just thinking of it as an add-on or something that we have to accommodate after the fact. And I'm particularly looking at this in terms of what we've learned over the past year and a half of the pandemic. So the achievement gap for disabled students has pretty much disappeared during that time. And it's really interesting to sort of see, like, as we go back to normal, quote unquote normal, what practices should we be carrying forward to make sure that we are sort of maintaining that and and maintaining that accessibility? I'm trying to focus specifically on the pedagogy aspects of it because accessibility is just such a huge issue and there are so many ways to, to come at it. So I'm starting off with looking at what specifically students want. So looking at the Students' Union Accessibility Report and then going to do some surveys and focus groups with students to see which aspects of their experience are the places that we can make the most effective change. And I'm also going to be surveying, surveying staff members to see what we could be doing as an institution that would encourage the uptake of more accessible practices. Because I think one of the big obstacles in the way is just that everyone is so incredibly busy, especially over the past year and a half. We've all just been sort of run ragged and making things accessible as yet another thing that we have on our to-do list. For a lot of people, that means that it doesn't happen. So thinking about what are the things that are standing in the way of staff taking on this and what are the things that we can be doing to sort of encourage that rather than just sort of having it be yet another mandatory thing that comes down that everyone then feels resentful about, which then has a negative knock-on effect on the student's experience. How can we actually be supporting this? And as part of that, I'm going to be searching for and identifying examples of best practice, putting together some training materials to use at things like the new academics programs and and workshops and things like that, and trying to develop a a sort of resource base where people can go and look at different techniques or tools that they could be implementing in their teaching design. You talked about good practice. So what what sort of things have you come across so far uh, from different, maybe different institutions or, or within the university? coming through the pedagogical literature on this. And there are a lot of really interesting um, adaptations. So the, basically the universal design principles are all around having options and flexibility and multiple means of students engaging. So there's representation, multiple means of representation, which is about the accessibility of the materials. There's multiple means of engagement. Um, so that's getting students to engage in different ways and offering different ways for students to engage with the activities. Um, and then there's the sort of component that is more centered around assessment. So giving students multiple ways of demonstrating that they've learned what you want them to to be learning. I think the big points that has in part explained some of this reduction in the achievement gap over the past year and a half is this assessments component, because we realized that we don't actually need to have a two hour SAT exam. We can do it in a slightly different way. And it's one of these instances where we sort of designed the course unit for a particular kind of student and then everyone just sort of assumes, well, then the students who need extra time will just get extra time. The students that that format doesn't work for will get 
the accommodations mm -hmm. for them as an individual. When I think a lot of the time, it's not actually even the best way to assess what we're trying to assess with a two-hour static exam. It's just the way that everyone's always done it. I mean, there are a lot of different factors that go into it. I mean, so one of the things is that for a lot of the exams, it was instead of having a two-hour exams, it was you had a week to do it and you can do it at any point within that week. And so, for example, if, if you have a student who has chronic pain, then they can choose within that week to do the exam on a day when they're in less pain, as opposed to just, this is the scheduled day. And if you're having a bad flare up, even if you have extra time, that's still not going to reflect that you've learned it. It's going to reflect how much pain you were in. So I think that some of it is about the environment and the materials being able to sort of take a little bit of extra time. And some of it is being able to sort of have a little bit more flexibility in when exactly you end up doing it. And I think also, I don't know, how much this is true. But my impression is I think a lot of us rethought how we were giving our assessments, not just how do we adapt this for what we're doing now, but how are we in fact doing this the way that actually is best for what we're teaching? And that's kind of what I want to encourage people to do is to really sort of reflect on not just in terms of accessibility, but accessibility as this broader aspect mm -hmm. of are we teaching this the way that is best to teach the material? So in SALC, we have... Mm -hmm the sort of assessment rules are really elaborate and draconian and have a lot of emphasis on things like word counts. And that really can stand in the way of adding flexibility and adding options and doing assessments in a style that is other than the sort of traditional written essay, which is not a style that works for all students. So looking at these kinds of policy documents and, and looking at where things could be changed a little bit to make it easier to go forward with some of the things that we've been able to do over the pandemic and further. When we're talking about assessment choice, can that also be in the mode of assessment? Yeah, it can be. Some of the, the course units through UCIL are doing some interesting things with assessment mm -hmm. choice. I think it's going to depend on what the specific learning outcomes are and what kinds of assessments are going to fit with those learning outcomes. But just on a sort of very sort of tiny level in, in the course unit that I'm teaching now, for one of the assignments, I give, a, give students a choice between two fairly different kinds of tasks that engage with different aspects of the course unit material, and they can choose whether they want to do one versus the other. So giving the students the options of things like instead of you have to write an essay for this, maybe you could write an essay or you could do, you could record a video. Instead of saying maybe this is, has to be a traditional essay, you could write it, you can offer them the option to do it more of a sort of blog post style. Mm -hmm. So there are a lot of ways in which we can you know, give, give options that meet the same learning requirements. Um, another thing that I think that some colleagues are doing that I think is really useful is doing a portfolio of assessments, you know, like small assessments throughout the semester that are formative in and of themselves, but then the students at the end submit a portfolio and they can choose which ones go into that portfolio. Do you think there are barriers for staff to suggest an option of, say, two different ways of completing an assignment? Yes, I see a lot of hang up on parity in a way that ends up meaning standardization. It's based on this idea that we need to have everything be the same. And therefore, that will be parity when, for example, a student with dyslexia might really struggle to write an essay, but could produce a video talking about the same thing. Getting people to focus a little bit more on what our intended learning outcomes actually are. So like we have these like ILOs, you have to list them off and even I, when I'm listing them off on the course unit descriptors, just sort of dash some things out and we don't really give a lot of thought to them. And I think that one of the things that ends up happening is that we get fixated on parity in things that aren't actually what we're trying to teach about in the moment. 
So in Selk, there's a lot of grade schema and all of these things look at a lot of things that have to do with writing. And it's useful on a program level to have, you know, it's important on a program level to have that as part of the overall program. But not every single assessment for every single course unit needs to be assessing that. And so we end up assessing things that are not really part of what we're trying to do in the moment. One of the ways around this kind of barrier of, it makes it seem sort of overwhelming and complex is to just say, well, what specifically is it are you, do you want people to show that they've learned in this assignment? And you know, are these activities, do they have parity in terms of that? I find that students actually can get a little bit scared of non-traditional assessment types because they're, they're sort of wondering, what's the catch? And so I always just have to be really clear about saying like, no, this is specifically what I'm looking for. This is what I want out of this. All of this other stuff you can do in so many different ways, but this is the thing that I'm looking for. Um, And they just get really worried that if they don't do the sort of traditional thing, that they're they're somehow going to be penalized for it. So I I always have specific rubrics for every single assignment that I give with really detailed, that makes it also easy for marking and feedback to have the very specific rubrics, but that I, I find it helps a little bit just to communicate to the students and also just establish what it is you're looking for in the assignment to say, here are the specific things that I'm marking you on. Your grade will come from this rubric, mm-hmm. <laughs> not anything that's not on here. And of course, in in the past, our students are typically people who are very good at exams because that's the way they usually get into the University of Manchester is being particularly good at doing those traditional kinds of exams. But obviously over the last two years, that's not necessarily the case because I know different sixth form colleges and other places where our students are coming from have assessed our students in different ways. So that gives another opportunity where we've we've hopefully got students who are more used to different ways of assessments, at least more used to them than they used to be a couple of years ago. So I think that's That's quite interesting, really. I have a um, sort of 10% participation mark for my large first year course unit. And what I've started doing now is saying that students can basically get points towards that in two different ways, either by participating in seminars or by participating in discussion forum posts on Blackboard. And so it's the sort of multiple means of engagement as part of UDL, which is basically just some students aren't comfortable talking, speaking up in the classroom. Correct. But we'll be comfortable discussing things on the, the forum. And for some people, putting things onto the forum doesn't work for them, and they'd much rather be there in person and do it in, in the classroom. And so just giving students the choice to engage in one of those two ways, the participation requirement is very small and, is, and it's not marked as such. Such a simple thing, then. It doesn't take a lot of effort to allow it to happen, but it makes a huge difference, I think, to a lot of people for whatever reason that they they find that that really difficult in seminars i think um, in, in my large lecture i've started um started using a padlet for just taking questions yeah because very few students even students who will participate happily in seminars aren't going to you know raise their hand and say something in a lecture hall with 150 students um, yeah. or at this point in the semester more like 75 but um i because i noticed oh, over the pandemic that when we were teaching on Zoom was miserable for so many reasons. But one of the pluses was that students could type in the chat box mm-hmm. instead of having to, you know, have the spotlight on themselves. So I've just been trying to sort of recreate that, partly because the dual hybrid means that I want to get engagement from both those who are in the classroom and those who yeah. are on, on Zoom. So um, and also just as a way of, of making it easier for students to ask oh. questions and, and participate. 
And if we look at the types of disabilities that students are typically registering with, the sort of largest growing type of disability in higher education is mental health disabilities. Mm -hmm. And this is an area where it's intimidating already for most people to be in that kind of situation. But then if you have anxiety or depression on top of that, that's just going to make just put up this barrier that means you're just going to check out and, and not be able to engage as fully. And so providing people these other ways of engaging with it and other ways of participating is, you know, it's both good practice and also accessibility. And I think that's the way we need to think about accessibility, that it is just good practice. It's just what we should all be doing all the time. But having these ideas and kind of concrete examples just makes that so much easier. Yeah, I mean, one of the things that I'm, that I'm, going to be doing as part of this project is just really actively seeking out who is doing good work around accessibility specifically. I think one of the things that I'm just going to have to do is is include that in my survey to students to say, is there a course unit that you found particularly accessible and what did they do? And then just sort of go and knock on that person's door, send them an email. So if you know of any good practice in this area, do get in touch with Wendell. But for now, I want to thank you, Wendell, for coming to talk to us today and wish you every success with your project.